Released in 1994 to a mixed critical response and much disdain from the BBFC, Paul W.S. Anderson's shopping gave a pre-apocalyptic vision of an unnamed British city in which a recently released joyrider Billy, played by an impossibly young Jude Law, and his best friend Joe, played by Law's future ex-wife Sadie Frost, set out to leave their mark on this city, along the way clashing with Jonathan Price's authoritarian chief of police and Sean Pertwee's rival gang leader Tommy, in what could have been seen as sparking the revival of the British independent scene had it not been eclipsed by the release of Danny Boyle's Shallow Grave the following year. I'm Elwood. I'm Kim. This is Movies and Tea. Let's take it to the booth. First off, welcome to the premiere episode of Movies and Tea. This is a brand new podcast hosted by myself and Kim, who you may have heard of already if you follow our stuff as being, you know, we are the creators of the greatest gaming podcast in the world, Game Warp, and now we are branching out into the realm of movies because we've essentially always talked about movies during our pre-production and post-production, so um, movies have always been at the background, so it's kind of made sense that we if we would do another show that we would be on movies. Um, so it's, it's, this... it's actually pretty funny that you say it, that it's our background. It's kind of been our foreground. It's kind of what we met each other through, you know, we started off with a movie review podcast and a podcast that you had. And now it's just, you know, we like, you still have your movie podcast and your TV podcast and all your other stuff. And <laughs> I'm sitting here with the gaming podcast and nothing else. So it's more of like, I feel like it's more stemmed out of like my desire to get back into movies. And since we always talk about movies off air, that this is like a really nice project to talk about since we sometimes like enjoy the same movies, but there are many times we have really different opinions about a lot of things. Yeah, and unlike a lot of other podcasts, this show we are going to be dedicating each season to a chosen director. Uh, this first season is going to be direct, dedicated to the work of Paul W.S. Anderson, um, a director who's probably best known for the Resident Evil franchise. And what we're going to do over the, the following episodes is we're going to look at his back catalogue in order and obviously chart his progression as a director um, and also just generally look at the films themselves and you know to give our general opinions on them and tonight we're obviously kicking off with his debut shopping this is from way back in 1994 um, for myself this was a film that I remember seeing years ago on late night TV and since then it kind of disappeared into the background it, a lot of people I don't think for realized that it was made directed by Anderson. Um, they perhaps thought, or that... even knew it existed, aka me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't really blame you because it was, as I said, this was something that was the only sort of advertising I remember it having was in the opening trailers of a video cassette for some other film. I don't actually remember it being this sort of film that came out and got loads of attention. And it's crazy that it didn't get that attention, though, because, well, I, I guess it makes sense because it is set in, like, the underground England, right, kind of idea. It's so hard to imagine that it wasn't because there's all 
all these familiar faces we see now, you know, like um, X amount of years, obviously, it's like what, uh, 24 years later. Um, it's and like a dozen movies after Paul W.S. Anderson, this movie comes up and we're talking about it. And there's all these familiar faces. Obviously, you know, there's like a cameo by Sean Bean and he doesn't die in this one. No, and no one talks about it, obviously. And, you know, obviously there's also Sean Pertwee, who plays Alfred right now in Gotham. And, you know, I love that guy. I think that he's fantastic as Alfred. And it's really nice to see him in such a much younger, more of a bad guy role, I guess. He's a bit of rough here for you, isn't he, <laughs> this time? He's, John Perry, we would obviously, we've seen him again in Event Horizon, and I think it was the fact that this film didn't really get picked up was the fact that led to Anderson really leaving the British scene and going off to try his luck in Hollywood. And it was really this, this film which... In, gave New Line the sort of green light to go ahead and fund him to make Mortal Kombat, which is the film which he would follow it up with, which is quite a leap when you compare the two. I mean, this has obviously got gritty, this sort of gritty post-apocalyptic world, and very much in sort of like the tune of like the first Man Max film, um, perhaps to an extent some like the Gregoraki post-apocalyptic, uh, so pre-apocalyptic movie, should I say, uh, so things such as like nowhere and doom generation it's got that real sort of vibe to it uh, though here it is very distinctly the british take on this so we have less of the sort of pop culture elements to it and it's all just very much of everything's very much grime and we have this very severe sort of like division between the rich and the poor certainly when you we are introduced to this film i mean jude law has been released from from prison and he's warned by he's warned by the chief of police who for whatever reason has taken this personal interest in Billy's case. Here obviously played by Jonathan Price, who it, himself is no stranger to dystopia and I mean he was obviously in Brazil. And here he's sort of like this background threat, even though it's only really at the end which he sort of like makes his move against Billy. You would thought there would be this constant sort of threat, but Instead, the world that Anderson creates here is just sort of more focused on Billy and his little crew as they engage in antisocial behavior, in particular ram raiding, which obviously didn't really warm the film to the BBFC, who pretty much didn't want to see you as a Britting around copying this film. The film itself, it's as I said, it's just sort of like this almost a slice of life look at this group. Mm-hmm. Um, you're seeing them they go through, as they go and do their things like kicks um, you see the groups that they hang out with and we have other threads as well such as when we look at Tommy who's played by Sean Pete as we mentioned already who's like this rival run raid gang and he's trying to turn it into a business he's not doing it mm-hmm. for kicks the same way that, that Billy is yeah I think that that's the main thing you know like you, I think slice of life is really the really right way to describe this film and it's it's also something that I felt caused a lot of some um I guess it was just I I guess because if you say it that way it feels like it's really deliberate that they did it that way but I felt like the pacing had a bit of impact and this movie is only like what an hour and 45 minutes or so so it, it feels weird when you're when you're talking nowadays about a movie that's like an hour 45 that has pacing issues because that's a really short film for today's standards I felt like you know like None of the characters are particularly fun to watch. 
Um, and I am a massive Jude Law fan, like a massive fan. I love everything that he does. I love his narration. I, I, I love, I think he has this most distinctive voice. And, but this role, I didn't care about. Like, it was really annoying, I found. He was really annoying. Joe, played by Sadie Frost, was really, really annoying. <laughs> Everybody just did, they're, they're, it felt like it was like a pointless walk through the whole thing, right? Um, you know, it was like, yeah, you're trying to be like intense and ram rating and they were trying to be all over the top. And I can see, I can see like so many roots of Paul Anderson, like where it started and how he kind of has polished a lot of these initial ideas into the later films that we were going to talk about. And I think that this is, I think that for that reason, I really enjoyed watching shopping because you know, you have chase scenes and you have action scenes and you have like a lot of these ideas where he works with later on in his career. And it seems like these skills and these these things really, um, you know, he really learned a lot from this project itself. You can certainly see that with this film, Anderson is very clearly a film fan. There's so many elements that you can see he's borrowing from other directors i mean he's born from george miller with the original max i mean i think uh one of the cars has actually got writing on so it looks like the pursuit car from uh from the opening man max which i thought was pretty cool certainly he gives us an exciting opening whereas we have the joyride through uh through the streets by the uh, police and it's all intercut with the screenshots of uh, crazy cars free from the amiga which somehow has made it onto a handheld console i don't know how they and, thought that was but and, and honestly i think that when that showed up i was like oh my goodness this is such the perfect director for us to start with especially because the movie itself just opening scenes and even throughout like most of the film like crazy cars is like a huge thing that keeps popping up you know they keep having that 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 video thing that keeps like passing back and forth everybody's <laughs> looking at it trying to get through it and and that sort of thing. And it's just, it's just so like, it's so us in that certain way that this film is, is like, you know, I just, I just thought it was like, there was a lot of really fun moments, you know, like, um, I thought that the soundtrack was fantastic. Like it was just so fun. And I think that made the movie a lot more, like more, um, I don't know, more like acceptable for me. Because there was just so much more fun things to like. It made every scene feel more vibrant and more alive, and you know. Oh, definitely. I have to say, the soundtrack, most much like most of this film, is so painfully nineties, which <laughs> is either a good or a bad thing depending on when you were born. I mean, if you're obviously um, a millennial and of the later generation, you will probably not get a lot of the fashion styles, a lot of the music taste is going to seem a little dated, but a lot of this is pretty groundbreaking stuff. I mean, the soundtrack, as you mentioned already, I mean, we opened Sabres of Paradise, that wonderful horns sort of section, which perfectly mm -hmm. sets the tone. It's sort of like this real grimy look, and we've obviously showed it over the industrial cityscape, which the film essentially takes in. There's, there is no nice cuts to suburbia or shots of green. I think the nicest, where all the sort of rich people are, is of course in the shopping mall um, called Retail Land, which where everyone wears white and they've listened to string quartets, and it provides this interesting dynamic when you see the gaudy street punks of Billy and his his crew. Yeah. Um, and certainly when we look at 
look at what's considered like the nirvana for for these kids uh when we go to the street party and they're going up in the left and we've got the wonderful overhead shot and yeah. it's set to um credit to the nation um the track call it what you want which samples nirvana smells like teen spirit which of course is perfect because it's all about we've got it perfectly captures this sense of social unrest amongst the youth and as we go off into this party you've got the bright lights because this is obviously the mm-hmm. nirvana this is the 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 paradise for these kids um yeah it's just a shame that for all every good scene that we have, you have someone say something stupid. Like, <laughs> we've got Billy and Joe and the supposedly flirtatious dialogue at the bar, and it's sort of like, um, it's like Budweiser, King of Beers, and she's sort of like, more like King of Piss. And you think, you can see that he thought this is really witty dialogue when he's written it, but it really just doesn't come off that way. And I couldn't tell whether it's the performers doing it or whether it's just too obvious a a, um, a nod to the catchphrase i i i honestly don't know because i was thinking the whole thing throughout the entire film um like it's why i think that like i thought the characters weren't that appealing i think it really dialed down to like the dialogue itself being really weird everyone's like you can see they were trying really hard to be like these carefree teenage uh adrenaline junkies or something not really teenagers though they're like they're like early 20s mid 20s something like that right so you know you see them like these these they're just trying to be really rebellious so they're trying to be really tough but then at the same time you know i'm not sure they really gave that they were able to really sell the toughness that they were supposed to have you know, like, I mean, ramming a car through, you know, ramming a car through a store window and then acting all, like, whimsical and weird, just trying to get things. Like, you know, it was really, like, I don't know what they were trying. Like, I I think that that's where it falls apart a little. I think as this is also, like, Anderson's first, like, um, write, written thing, I suppose. I guess it's also, like, one that he wrote and he directed. That it it feels like, like... It, it's missing a little something, I guess. Like it's it's a little bit, um, I don't know. It lacked a bit of the 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 continuation, I guess, between like just having the characters develop properly, and then it's like you know at the end, it's like suddenly Joe is like, oh, you know, suddenly she has this revelation that she she wants to leave, you know, and it's just kind of like, okay, well, sure, I guess, you know, then why don't you just go? <laughs> And then you know exactly where that path is going to go, you know? I think when it comes to Joe, I mean, you obviously mentioned already, I mean, she sees this life away from the streets. And Billy's sort of... He's too much of a juvenile spirit. He's Mm -hmm. caught up in the thrill of it. I mean, the Ram Raging scene that we have is all based around the fact that... um, First of all, it's, it's based largely in the fact that they get kicks out of doing the act. And second, because Billy needs a new kettle, which seems a bit extreme to Ram Raider store to go and get a new kettle. But you can tell when the, the act, while the Ram Raider act itself is really cool to see, it's very sort of aggressive and in break, uh, sort of in your face. Once they are in the store, you can they're trying to make it look hip and cool. I mean, the fact Jude Law's wandering around with the umbrella while the sprinklers go off. Uh, you've got Sadie Frosted Joe like complaining the fact she can never find clothes in her style. Um, it does seem kind of pointless, the fact that they do all this effort for a kettle. Um, it's... Well, I mean, the first scene, the first raid they did, she just got glasses, right? Like, 
Jude Law didn't even get anything from the store. They just <laughs> rammed it, and then she picked up the glasses, and then they kicked over the mannequins and stuff, and then they left. So it felt like, you know, I think it's really, like, they're trying to emphasize on, like, the idea that these guys are really doing it for the rush, for the thrill. And, you know, it's starting to see the difference, like, as the movie progresses, we really see the difference between Billy and Joe because... You know, Billy is constantly looking for something. You know, he's looking for this challenge, this, you know, higher adrenaline rush and just, you know, something that, you know, he's wanting more and more of this thr- these thrills. Whereas, like, Joe is, you know, she's content with the thrills that they have now and she's not really, like, she kind of sees something more, I guess. Like, she, I guess she's maturing in her own way. Yeah, and I feel that, when it comes to Billy, the fact that every act he does, it's sort of fed into by the admiration. He becomes this sort of like folk hero to the local sort of street toughs in the area around, such as when they do the, when they escape him from the police after Ram raiding the store and they go into the estate and they essentially lure the police into this trap where the local, the local kids bombard them with, with bricks and a fridge, which they somehow got from somewhere. And it's, they just basically, he essentially leads this uh, rebellion, perhaps intentional, perhaps unintentional, against the police, and they manage to have this successful strike back against these police. He gets this sense that he he's elevated to this folklore status with very little regard to the consequences of his action. I mean, you mentioned already he doesn't really care too much what Joe thinks, whether the fact she wants out of this life, the fact that he's gone and ram raided a store that essentially has been marked by Tommy because he's made a deal with Sean Bean's character that he's going to steal these suits by Ram Raid in the store. And that obviously creates the conflict with them there. I mean, Sadie Frost's character, Joe, I know you didn't like her. Uh, for myself, I felt she fell into that hip female rebel uh, sort of group that the 90s were just so packed with. I mean, we had like Angelina Jolie and Hackers. We had... Um, had things like Tank Girl, we had The Craft. For some reason, the 90s seemed to be this constant supply of female rebels, and they were always so more painfully more hip and cool than their male counterparts. And certainly this seems to be the case with Joe here. I mean, she's got a slicker, she's wearing the sheriff's badge, and I mean, the sheriff's badge that she's wearing seemed almost symbolic because she is kind of like the peacemaker between both Mm -hmm. Billy and Tommy. She's sort of like, from their sort of like street gang level, She's like the one who's keeping the peace constantly. So she is essentially playing the sheriff, which I thought was a nice sort of symbolism. And at times, yes, the symbolism does get a little overhanded, such as like the game dying being the sort of symbolizing the death of the dream for her, because around that point, she just wants out of the life. Um, Mm -hmm. But I can obviously see what you're saying when the dialogue here, I mean, it's a lot of this, I think I'm used to because it's very sort of London, sort of Cockney sort of swagger. And mm-hmm. certainly the films which followed, such as like No Clark's Adulthood and Kidulthood, um, those Larry Clark knockoffs, um, it it's only got worse, I'm sad to say. Um, whereas obviously if we compare it to like the American counterparts, so like Larry Clark's Kids um, and like the Greg Araki early sort of 90s movies, you can see the same sort of thing. But because, I know, perhaps it's done with like, American swagger with more pop cultural sort of sensibilities. It seems a little more kill, a little more hip. Um, certainly to myself, I mean, 
it it, it does seem to have a sense of familiarity for myself having just obviously being a Brit so you kind of get used to this sort of uh, banter really yeah I can see what you're saying I mean like I I think I think Joe's character is is, is a little it, it, it kind of grows on you because she has kind of like the most development in her character you know it, you really see her character like wanting something more you know whereas like this movie kind of falls a little flat because it never really like has the threats you know like yeah you know you got sean pertwee and you got like um the police after him right so these are all threats but they're never really there you know they're you know maybe like he's throwing some you know, some stink eye over at that get at, at them every once in a while. You get the background of this corporation organization thing that that's being run like a business or trying to be run like a business. Um, but overall, you know, like it doesn't really ever feel like there's really any threat, and there was really only you know only a few directions this film could have ended. Hmm. Um, you know, especially in movies like this and seeing that it's set in the 90s and stuff like that. I don't think it's a bad film. I think it's it, it's 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 a fun movie to to really like. It's a fun movie and it's it's pretty good for a debut effort, I think. Um, it you know, like I said, there there's a lot of things that um, Anderson does here, which really show what he's passionate about, you know, like the, like the style that he has for making film and, and just that the way that, you know, like, I mean, I always feel that Anderson, you know, just looking at this film really feels like he's in his own little bubble about what he (laughs) thinks is cool, you know? Yeah. And, and that rubs off on like, you know, it rubs off on why a lot of his films are really, really like cult followings. You know, there's, you know, a lot of people are not going to, like, say Resident Evil franchise. Everybody says it's a crap series. <laughs> but is it really a crap series? It's enjoyable for what it tries to deliver. And the same argument can go for Death Race. The same argument can go for Event Horizon. And obviously, you know, like, uh, Mortal Kombat and, and, you know, that sort of thing, right? And I think it's the same for shopping. Like, it, it really takes a certain group of people to really enjoy this film and really like be like, oh, this is the best thing ever. It's so much fun, you know. I I didn't think it was so much fun. I thought it was a little slow. Yeah. But I still thought it was really like it was entertaining as as what it was trying to do, you know, like underground England and stuff. Like the setting itself was really nice. Yeah, I mean, I it's not certainly not my favorite film of his back catalog, yeah. and I mean the <laughs> fact that I put so many years between between watches may have also um, represented, but certainly returning to it as an older viewer, and I think certainly knowing what I was going to get uh, helped me prepare a little better for this because the trailer seems to be selling it as this big action thriller. It's all like high speed chases, and it's really not. We have a high speed chase at the start we have a couple of ram raiding scenes in between and then we have the big sort of ram raiding heist on uh retail land at the end of the film which we'll talk about in a in a minute because it's certainly an interesting ending that's <laughs> not the way i would have gone but um i think you're right when you were saying there's no real so a sense of threat. I mean, we have this background sense of threat. I mean, from like Tommy or from like the chief of police. Um, the fact that both of these parties threaten Billy at one point or another, both break his stuff, and 
you have this mild element of threat, but at the same time, Billy is probably more of a danger to himself because mm. of his reckless nature. I mean, when we see the post-club sequence and he's basically playing chicken on the motorway for no other reason than he's getting a rush out of it. And yeah. perhaps he's trying to impress Joe. It's really hard to say with their relationship because I know that um, when they're at, you got the club scene, uh, one of their, their friends is sort of like, oh, what you two got against fucking? Because yeah. he's all flirting with a girl and you assume that they're a couple, but they're not. And it's... But they... it's but it's weird because if you look at like some summaries of the show and of the of the movie and stuff, they do classify them as a couple. And but the movie never explicitly says that they are, you know. But he will do things like you know he'll get things for her. He'll he'll like well he'll rob something for her or something, you know, like oh I got this for you at this raid and you know yeah or you know I, this is for this is whatever you know and you know they obviously care for each other. They seem like they're together, but they never you know are wildly intimate, you know, like they're, they're lacking that sort of thing. You know, they, they even only have what, like one kiss in the whole thing. And, yeah. and, and then it's like, you know, you know, it, it's kind of like this thing where, Oh, it's the nineties. And you know, it, it's not safe or something. I can't remember <laughs> the exact line. Well, I mean, Sadie Frost really is the embodiment of the nineties. So, I mean, her casting, this is just absolutely perfect. I mean, if you're going to have this sort of like rebel dream girl, in a 90s film. I think Sadie Frost is like the girl to go to. I mean, you only have to like look at her reach in this thing. I mean, she was sort of like the it girl of like the 90s. I mean, she shows up um, in the background of like common people from Pulp. Um, And she was seemed like wherever there was something like very British, you would normally find Sadie Frost normally somewhere associated with her. She was always seen hanging around with the right people. And I mean, obviously through this film, she met her future ex-husband Jude Law and in turn he met their future nanny <laughs> which broke <laughs> up their marriage so but uh yeah I think I think because their their relationship's not so obvious they're not they're not this Bonnie and Clyde uh pairing which would probably have been the more obvious way to go um I feel it kept it kept it more interesting talking about the ending now we obviously have this big finale heist, so to speak, um, where they're going to go and they're going to ram raid into retail land, and it's all building up to building up to this moment. And I don't know if uh, it caught you by surprise, but uh, it obviously goes horribly, horribly wrong. And uh, it's shot with such a sober world view. This film, it's not. I mean, we lose two uh, two of our characters pretty pretty sharp off and it's very sudden uh, yeah in probably one of the most spectacular crashes i've seen in a while and we obviously think that joe and billy they're going to get away the it's only seems to be building up to them getting away and then obviously mm. anderson's like nah you're not gonna have that no, and then he just ends it no i i didn't see them getting away um i felt like it was a very wildly 90s thing or just like the writing twist of of the time that it was like, you know, the moment Joe decided that she was going to come back to do that final thing, it was kind of like when somebody in a slasher says they're going to come back. It, they're not going 
You know, they're not <laughs> going to come back. They're going to they're going to exit this thing, you know, forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh I have to say that I was counting the flips that this this card does at the end. I mean, let's face it. I mean, they probably would have got away had Billy not been so bloody cocky. If his own cockiness leads to their demise and the fact he can't apparently look at the road he's driving down. Um, yeah, but, you know, I, I sometimes wonder if, like, if they had added a scene, I would have really liked that whole, like, grim sort of ending where, like, Billy's going to realize, like, that at the end he would have survived this, you know? And he's going to realize, like, he's, would he feel like, I sometimes think, would he have felt incredibly bad that, he dragged Joe back into this and they get into an accident because of his cockiness. And then she dies and doesn't get that future that she wants, you know, like would he feel bad, you know, like that this is what he caused. Cause I still think he could have survived this, you know, I mean, like, yeah. Um, Cause he's... he, he was, he opened his eyes. So did he die? We don't know. That's like a question mark, you know, like it's, it's, it's a question mark of whether he survived. And, and like, if I, if I was him, but I'm not like an adrenaline junkie, nor am I a thrill seeker or anything like that. So I don't know Does that change my perspective on how much I care about other people because he hasn't really cared about anyone throughout the whole thing. Yeah. So would he, would he, would it be like a light that turns on that it's like, oh, man, I killed this girl who's like my partner in crime, literally, because of, you know, kind of like my arrogance and you know, my cockiness, you know, I, I, I felt like, you know, that was, if they had added a scene like that, I would have felt like, wow, this is like <laughs> super deep stuff. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it's all, this is underlying sense of forbidden, forbidden doom that's going into this heist. I mean, you can tell that Joe obviously doesn't feel good going into the heist and Billy's sort of like ignoring all the, sort of warnings that seem to be there. The fact that things are going too well for them. There's too many... There's all these things that could potentially go wrong, but he's just ignoring them. He's going straight ahead. He's got his his goal in mind. And I couldn't help but wonder how the police knew that they were going to hit this store. I mean, did Tommy tip them off? Because uh, yeah. you see the Tommy obviously sees the police helicopters going ahead, and he's like, bye-bye, Billy. And it seems to yeah, indicate that it he was, knows it what's was going Tommy. on. It was Tommy. That that was the thing. There was a scene where he was like, he was like, oh, you know, they did this, and now I know about this retail land deal that he rejects him from to join in. And then he's like, and then he's like, well, if you know, I can't have this, then I'm going to, you know, do something about it, sort of thing, right? Yeah. And then he picks up his phone and he calls, and I guess he tips off the police because of that. For that, I think I must have missed that part because I've, <laughs> I just, um, I did, I was, I just yeah, wondered why that. the police were there. <laughs> Yeah, no, because there was that there was a scene right after um Jude Law, like Billy leaves the the scene after they discuss and he tricks him and he and he thinks he tricks him and he says, "Oh, okay, yeah, we're I'll t I'll give you an answer tomorrow." And then and then like Tommy's like uh Tommy's like, "Oh, like his his uh, right-hand man is like, "Oh, do you do you believe him, you know?" And then Tommy's like, well, no, he's probably going to hit it today or something. And then, you know, if I can't do this, then blah, blah, blah. You know, then he ends up picking up his phone and calling somebody. But then the scene cuts. Yeah. And then we get to the back. And then that was a scene where I was like, you know, okay, well, obviously things are going to go real bad <laughs> at this point. Um, 
I mean, something I forgot to mention, obviously, earlier, when we look at Tommy's hideout, his base of operations, and it's basically multiple apartments that they've they've knocked through. There's no attempts to do anything nice uh, with these, these makeshift renovations. They've basically taken sledgehammers to walls and just punched through uh, to create this base of operations for themselves. And... It, as I say, it only really enforces the fact that Tommy's seeing this as a business. This is his way out. He he knows the only way he's going to get out of the streets is by using the resources he has, which is obviously these loyal thugs that he has following him, the fact he's got the ability to do ram raiding, and um, Billy is kind of screwing all this up <laughs> by his, you know, everything that he's supposed to be, all these stores he's supposed to be taking out. But yeah, I mean, certainly when we that final sort of shot, Billy, as you said, is alive from what we can tell. I mean, he's opened his eyes. And the car is just sort of inches away from the storefront. And it's hard to say. I mean, is this a representation of Billy seeing this life he could have had just, like, just out of his grief? Or is it just, like, is it Anderson basically saying, like, look how close he came to pulling it off? Regardless of the fact that he's flipped this car six times in the escape, which I thought that he, the car actually flipped more times than the car flip we see in Casino Royale, but I think it falls a couple short, but it's hell of a crash. <laughs> well, I mean, you can't compare the two crashes, right? I mean, the car is different. <laughs> this one, like, with every flip, it just breaks apart, literally, you know? So it's it's uh I wouldn't compare the two, but I do I do agree that it it's kind of like it's kind of like laughing at the situation a little. It's like um it's like kind of I don't know the the fact that it stops right in front of retail end and he's staring right at it. I think that's the idea is that it's like right out of his reach. Yeah. Like he was so close, but he would never get it, sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, further viewing, I mean, obviously, if you do like shopping i mean what would you sort of pair it with i mean mean, for myself i would look at things i mean for some reason it's a british film but my instinct seems to be to go over to like uh the french independent scene and look at things such as like la haine um or subway like uh, luke besson's early film these are the sort of films that come to mind that sort of that when i think of this it's not so much the the british films which sort of followed in it it's way cheaper before such so as like things such as like made in england or those awful awful <laughs> um sort of street fug movies there uh, from noel clark that um attempted to <sighs> convince everyone that he's a tough guy but i just i think if you wanted to follow this up i mean um i would say evil la Haine or subway is going to be the the best sort of pairings i mean other than that, you're going to be looking, as we said already, you're going to look at stuff such as like Larry Clark's Kids, or you're going to look at like Gregor Archie's uh, Nowhere or Doom Generation. I think those are going to be yeah, the films that I would closely uh, sort of pair it to. But I mean, Kim, is there anything you would pair it with at all? I actually think this would work really well with, I don't know, maybe something like, um, it makes me think of something like The Outsiders. I don't know why. Mm. I haven't seen The Outsiders in a really long time, but I remembered watching it in school, and I thought that this kind of really matches with like that sort of like um, kids running, running wild sort of idea, I guess. And I think in the sense of just like a psychological kind of um, how someone kind of like self-destructs themselves a little, 
it kind of reminds me a little of we need to talk about Kevin as like a more modern selection. Um, but obviously that's a completely different style of story. It's not really like I wouldn't pair that. I think it's more suitable to the outsiders in the sense that this is more of like an action sort of um, sort of like, I don't know, a slice of life sort of yeah. idea. And that really works with the outsiders really, really well. Cool. So this wraps up our debut episode of Movies and Tea. Um, Kim, when to do, uh, what are we going to be looking at next? <laughs> you should be the one talking about this one. So we're going to be talking about 1995 video game adaptation of Mortal Kombat. Obviously, we do both have video game roots, seeing that um, Game Warp podcast, if that's not where you came from, uh, is, you know, our is our pilot project for ourselves. So it's kind of like really nice to get back into something that's, you know, kind of roots into it. And, you know, uh, even with this one, where we see this like Paul Anderson love for video games. So, you know, there, there's going to be a lot of love in that next one. Um, luckily for this, <laughs> for this one, I haven't seen it in a really long time. So it's almost like a first viewing, just like shopping. So uh, the, the discussion is going to be interesting. Myself is just this week's viewing. It's <laughs> <laughs> a constant loop. Mortal Kombat has been since 95. Thank you, of course, of, uh, for obviously joining us for this pilot episode. If you do wish to obviously follow us, you can do uh, via Facebook. We have got the Facebook page up there as well. Uh, you can also check out our, our archive and listen to all episodes uh, which will be slowly building up over the uh, coming episodes and you can find uh, that at moviesandteampodcast.wordpress.com of course uh, please do uh, leave us a rating or a review if you're listening to us on iTunes or Podomatic uh, wherever you happen to be leaving to us uh, please do let us know what you think of the show and uh, let us know your thoughts on Paul the films of Paul Anderson let us know your favourites or uh, the films you hate the hate of his uh, back catalog we'd love to hear your uh, thoughts as we obviously work our way through um, through the films of his uh, back catalog over this season but uh, until uh, until next time I'd like to thank as always my co-host Miss Kim Lowe Thank you. And uh, the Silver Jones signing off uh, the premiere episode of Movies and Tea. Thank you for listening. Jump, jump.